0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: I'm April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Larry Dahlberg is a guest I've wanted to have on the show for some time now. You may know of him as the man who created the Dahlberg Diver, but he is also the inventor of Flashaboo and various other fishing innovations. In this episode of Anchored, Larry and I discuss his long-running television series, The Hunt for Big Fish, how he got his start, and his thoughts on fishing the thermocline, ideal water temperature, how to properly fish his fly, and so much more.
2: I was born in a little town of... a uh... 931 people in Burnett County, Wisconsin, uh, it was the largest town in the county, and uh, was, I was born December 12, 1949. I never thought I would leave Burnett County, I had everything I needed right there.
1: We'll come back to your youth, but why did you leave?
2: Um, well, I had to get a job, so, uh, I mean, where it all started, I, I grew up in that area. And uh, I, my, my grandfather, my, great, my, my uh, m- uh, maternal grandfather uh, had a whole bunch of kids, lived on, uh, you know, whatever he could, you know, pulp, uh, sturgeons. Uh. <laughs> and then uh, my other grandpa uh, on the other side uh, uh, was in the electric business. Uh, they started the uh, utility business. And uh, as a little kid my my maternal grandpa would bring me along because it allowed him to kill twice as many fish uh, you know two limits uh, uh, but as a little kid my I was addicted to fishing. I just I remember the first fish I ever caught. I was four years old, and I had dropped this minnow down a hole uh, through the ice, and the bobber went down. It was a little bobber my dad had carved. I remember carving them out of uh, balsa wood in the basement. And I pulled up this fish hand over hand. That's how we did it uh, then. And uh, my dad was hollering. I was excited. And he was hollering because I was putting the line on the stove of uh, his monofilament, you know, real light model. <laughs> I got the fish, but I didn't have any line left. And uh, I still remember the smell of it and the sound of the Coleman lantern. And then in the springtime, um, I guess I was about four, uh, he had uh, rigged up an ice fishing stick that was too long for the uh, ice fishing. It was just, you know, cumbersome. It was made to fish outdoors. And he put a little fly reel on it, and he taught me how to flop it back and forth. And we we tied little black gnats out of, uh, you know, just black chenille and a little bit of uh, red marabou out the back. And I'd stand in the waist-deep water in the spring uh, and catch sunfish flopping this uh, little gnat around, and he had his... uh he had a Granger Victory three piece bamboo uh, gray rod, A uh, weight. GBF is what they were back then, uh, which is a whole nother issue. The line weights and you fly and weenies drive me crazy, uh, the variations, but that's a whole nother issue. But anyway, that's how I got, it start, got started actually uh, uh, fly fishing. And then in the spring, they would fish walleyes. Uh, my, my mom wouldn't let my dad fish uh, muskies until the freezer was adequately supplied with walleyes. <laughs> And as a kid, um, I always wanted to go with him, and he, he would take me along uh, in the spring uh, walleye fishing, but um, uh, I was not very capable, you know, as a four-year-old. So he made a deal with me that uh, he gave me a fluger skill cast. Uh, it was an old steel rod in this uh, rubber lure with no hooks on it. I had to stand in a certain place in the backyard and cast this uh, rubber thing, under the swing set into a box if i could do it eight out of ten times i could go with it how about the t- summer i was five uh, i was able to do that and um my mom stepped in and said you gotta take him with you you promised and uh that's when i learned how to row uh, he would put me in the middle seat of this grumman sport boat weighed 114 pounds and uh, put a couple cushions underneath, and I, I couldn't even see over the gunnels. And he'd say, Pull in the right oar, pull on the right oar, and push on the left oar. Okay, good. Pull on both oars. And then we'd be going down, he'd be casting, and then I'd get to fish when we anchored. Well, I don't know. By the time I was 11, I was pretty competent, and he would let me um, loose, like on a Wednesday, and pick me up on a Friday, uh, all alone, uh, no food, no water. And uh, He would pick me up, you know, after, you know, I'd float 15, 20 miles, you know, and just had my little spots where I'd camp, crawl underneath the boat. I didn't have uh, sleeping bags or tents or stuff like that. And uh, I had little streams I could go up. I had little sticks stashed where I could... uh, each little corner, you know, has got a little different character. So you need a three-foot stick with four feet of mono, or a, you know, I had these little eight-size sixteen uh, treble hooks I got from Herders, and you get these little pink worms. You know, don't eat the stumps, and didn't need uh, forks or spoons or anything. You just roast them on a stick and eat them, and you know, move on. No vegetables. Didn't have to brush my teeth. It was perfect. But anyway,
1: do you say worms?
2: Yeah, we eat. I'd catch the brookies on these little pink worms.
1: Oh, okay, brookies. I thought. You, okay, gotcha. Yep.
2: Yeah, there's little teeny streams that w- that ran into the main river that have brookies. Uh, the main oh, river. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'd have sticks hidden in the woods. So I just, you know, would have a piece of mono and a size 16 treble, and you just, you know, maybe throw a couple worms in to tease them out of the corner, and then. Boom, boom put him on the hook and no
1: I, I i missed the brookie part and thought i heard you uh, say that you roasted and ate worms and i thought oh no God. i i never okay. was like
2: <laughs> but, but anyhow, i was like a little river rat and there was a but there was a private club of uh we called them the uh, rich guys that fly fish for smallmouth and uh we'd sort of sneer at them as they went by and uh it was a fishing club that had been around for years started in the mississippi when the army corps ruined the mississippi they moved north anyhow uh, an old fellow died one of the guides and they needed a fill-in and they called my dad oh help mr pillsbury's coming we need it charlie died and uh, take the kid. He knows where the bass are so i got a tryout with this guy philip pillsbury who was a really cool guy he was uh, started the Pillsbury Baking Company. Uh, the guy could throw a fly like no. <laughs> Sitting down in a boat at age 70, uh, he's, he had a Pinky Gillum three piece, which he gave me. I have it in the in my uh, collection. Last day he fished, he gave it to me. He could sit down at the, seat of the you know, back seat of the boat and go, whoosh, and throw 90 feet of sticky old gooey fly line with a loop so tight it'd go th- into a mailbox. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. But anyway, I got to start uh, guiding, and uh, I had an advantage. All the other guys that guided, they're old guys, they guided for years and years, uh, but they fished walleyes with live bait when they're on their own, so they knew the banks and they knew the pools where the fish were. But as a little kid, I, what I'd do, the first thing I'd do is pull my boat up this uh, creek. I'd go to the uh, uh, downside of the power dam get a bunch of minnows, get a bunch of crayfish, get a bunch of stuff. And then I'd head down, I'd climb up in the trees. We hadn't invented polarized glasses yet. So you had to climb a tree to really good look at some. So I get up in these trees, I start throwing crap in and see what came out. And, uh, you know, you're a little kid, you poke with a stick, see what it does. And so I knew of where a lot of these fish were, like, exactly where they were. And so the first fish, Mr. Pillsbury went over this spot. I had to first put some rocks in the front of the boat. He was so big, I'd get in, I, the bow of the boat was sticking out. It was like, I can't. So I had to put some big rocks in the front. And, and uh, I took him to the spot he'd never been. He'd fished in this river for longer than I'd been alive. Well, young man, I've never been over here before. I said, Well, cast there's an orange rock. You can't see it unless you climb that tree, but there'll be a big bet. And boom, he caught one. And every place I told him there was going to be one, there was one. And he thought I was some sort of a savant. Uh, it wasn't like he'd cut one every cast, but there's one there. No, a little bit further into the right, boom. And I got a full-time job. I did that for a, a number of years. And then uh, a lot of the members of the club turned out. There's a guy named Chuck Walton, held a world record permit on a fly for years and years and years. And he was a head chemist at 3M. Uh, had a lot to do with them going into tapes and adhesives instead of just sandpaper. And then there's a fella, Bert Cross, who's a president of 3M, and there's another fe- uh, fella named Lou Jewett, who was the head of uh, New Business Ventures. And uh, these uh, guys all like to fly fish, and they were selling microspheres—those those things that uh, make fly lines float, also makes uh, stop so- signs reflective. Oh. Uh, the microscope is a giant invention for, uh, I think, Bird actually invented it. But anyway, he became the head chemist. And uh, I guided these guys through high school. And uh, then we had a bunch of other guys. And a bunch of them thought I should go to law school and be a U.S. senator. And the other ones thought I should uh, go to work for uh, uh, 3M in this uh, fly fishing and fly line, uh sci anglers deal. So I went to college and I got a degree in uh, uh I got a B.S. degree in English. What uh, was your
1: plan? What were you going to do with that?
2: Well, uh, English was what was easy for me. And uh, both of the directions that were suggested, uh, English was a very, very good um, major. Not a teaching degree, but a like writing degree. And I was always interested in the sciences. So I got a BS degree in English. It just turned out to be that way. I think it was a a fairly unusual one. Anyhow, then the Vietnam uh, War was uh, happening. And uh, anyway, uh, there was a hiring freeze on at 3M because Jimmy Carter was president at that time. And so they suggested, well, what you ought to do is uh, go to work for a sporting goods store and get some experience in this category. And there was a new store opening, and I went in and applied. And the guys asked me, well, did you ever do any uh, fishing for, you ever do any fly fishing? I said, yeah. I used to guide some and blah, blah. And we went out in the back alley with a fly rod. And um, they sort of gave me a little tryout, and uh, I passed. And I went to work for this, uh, this, this, uh, sporting goods company called Burger Brothers Sporting Goods. They just opened up in Minneapolis and I did that for uh, three, four years. And then, uh, decided that I didn't know if I liked that deal too much and went back into the guiding business. They were going to sell the fishing camp that, uh, I had worked at because they couldn't find anybody uh, to run it. And, uh, my wife and I went back up and ran that, and I started a guiding uh, deal in a uh, uh, manufacturer's rep uh, business in the Midwest, and uh, I could have had uh, so many good lines. Uh, I was ended up the buyer at this store, and we had just creamed it. It turned into finally holiday stores, and they sold it to Gander Mountain. It, became, it was a, a juggernaut of a store. And I could have had all these high-end electronic lines and all this stuff. Instead, I thought, well, you know, the world needs fly fishing a little bit more. Uh, you know, there's not enough people to do it. So I went out and struggled and tried to pioneer the, the fly thing for a while. And then uh, the people at In Fisherman, uh, I can't remember what how, Oh, it worked out. Um, I got a phone call out of the blue from... Uh, Spencer Petros. He was a writer at the uh, uh, Fishing Facts magazine. Are you familiar with Fishing Facts magazine? Um, And um, he was filming with Roland Martin up in this neck of the woods, and they'd been here for several weeks and hadn't shot a foot of footage. And he said, uh, uh, I don't know where he'd even, you know, how he knew me, but... You think you could you know are you catching any fish i said i just got home the water temps are exactly perfect i'm going musky fishing tomorrow And uh yeah and he got showed up and uh we made a little bit of a run and uh, i had this fish pretty well uh, like exactly located i went upstream a few hundred yards uh, you know shake the shake stuff out and they started winging their crap and uh we get to you know where the fish are going to be. I said, to, I dropped my hook. I said, we're going to be right here. I had the cameraman with me, and it Petrus Bros and, and Roland. I told him, here, use the, you know, what to use, but well, they're not doing that. And I said, come on over here. We'll catch one. And he said, no, nah, I kind of like it where we're fishing. And I kind of growled a little bit. And uh, I said to Eddie, the camera guy, huh you want to get a muskie on? tape he said yeah i said you should start your camera because i'm gonna cast right there and catch one and he looked at me he said are you shitting me i said no so i you know i got it rolling i made the cast and it went about four feet and a 25 pounder ate it and i got him up to the boat and said what do you want to do with it but then a uh, spencer and uh roland came over and we unhooked it and they put it in their live well I said, there's probably going to be one, maybe two more here. They're going to be just downstream, just, just a little bit. And, uh, so just tie your boat up to me and we're going to move out just a little bit. So we moved down about 15 feet and I said, just start casting. And they started casting and casting and they weren't using the right stuff and they weren't bringing in the right direction and they were moving it way too quickly. (sighs) And uh, I was using a lure we had just developed, a friend of mine and I, and, uh, I said, you know, I looked at Eddie, and I kind of rolled my eyes, and I, I made a cast, and, womp, womp, and I see this fish coming, and he flashed, and I jerked my bait out of the water. I said, the fish is right there. Just cast and do what I told you. And the petro, oh, you are so full of, bup-bup. you would never have, it. and he didn't know me. I, I looked at him, I made a, made a cast, I jerked it about four times, and this fish eats it right 15 feet from the boat, and I'm fighting it, and I see another flash. I told, cast, cast, cast. So, Roland now, smart enough, put the lure on that I gave him, made a cast, boom, now we have the double. So, I landed mine, and his got off right next to the boat, and these guys were like, oh, well, we got, you know, like, I'll tell you the rest of it because it involved the other fish and another lure that wasn't involved and there was some tv theatrics and magic that um i had never witnessed you know i didn't know anything about that and they were happy with what they had gotten I said, well let's go we're done and so uh we left another 10 fish behind that i think i probably could have caught and they went away and then uh a while later i got a call from uh, al linder and uh we went fishing, and uh, he asked me if I would uh, write an article and do a, a segment in their TV show about fly fishing. And so that's how I got into, got into that. Did that for a while, and then I uh, got out of that. I thought it was um, not right to be in the sales business and in the media business both. So I, I actually gave my red business away to a guy that was working with me, uh, Tommy Anderson, super guy. It was a sage rep here for a million years. A lot of guys know Tommy. And um, went to work for the End Fisherman and did that for, gosh, several years. And I got kind of bored with, uh, you know, their whole formula was F plus L plus P equals success, which at the end of the day boils down to getting as close as you can with live bait and dropping it over the top of something uh, is usually... Um, and it was somewhat oversimplified, and it's a small world, and um, I was curious about a lot of different things. And so I wanted to go find out a bunch of stuff. So I started the, uh, so I came home, and uh, uh, we'd had a meeting, and Fisherman, and, and um, the powers decided that B wanted to really focus on this walleye tournament business, and the tournament angling, and, and, and so on. And uh, I wanted, I was more interested in where if we're going to be in the walleye tournaments. Let's go in places where people don't know how to catch them, uh, where they're hard to catch and uh, so on. And that way we grow it, but to go to where it's already, it's hyperventilating and already hyperventilated group of people. And it doesn't grow the, 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 the body like as it should, I don't think. And it's boring, you know, for me as a kid. We had to have the freezer full of walleyes before we could fish muskies. So I looked at them as a form of punishment. i to catch, you know. But anyway, I decided uh, I'd go off, kind of go off on my own, and uh, started the hunt for big fish. And I guess that would be in the early 1990s.
1: Big call. Because back then you had to, so you would have been buying airtime. Were you trying to arrange all your sponsors and
2: yeah I was take doing care of all the sales? Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Did you stay in Wisconsin the whole time? Or did, when you well, said that you moved I, out I, for a job?
2: Where I was born was right on the border of Wisconsin and Minnesota. And when I went to, uh, in the rep business, I just stayed where, you know, where I was, where I was at. Uh, and then when I worked, went to work, I went to work full time for the fishermen, produced their TV shows, I guess, four or five, six years. I didn't remember how long. Um, then I, I moved to Brainerd um, and then, but it's too far from the, from the airport. Uh, that's three and a half hour drive to Minneapolis airport. So I had to find something a lot closer to the airport. Uh, for, uh, so I moved to uh, where I live now in uh, Taylor's Falls, Minnesota, which is about an hour from Minneapolis and, um, 25, 30 minutes from where I was born.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so you stayed in the general vicinity.
2: Oh, yeah. I I don't have time in my life to learn another area as well as I know where I am. And I think most anglers, you know, you have a lot of anglers that are fish chasers that are chasing a hot bite or something, But um, and that's great. But um, what I've learned um, is that if you learn a body of water you really, really well, that I mean, really learn it uh, so you can catch them when they're quote-unquote not biting. Um, You can take that and transpose it to another body of water. And so if you approach it where you you break your uh, flowing water into categories, types of rivers, and then you take still water and break it into lakes uh, based on um, their age. We I break it into uh, the uh, system that we used it in fishermen the uh, oligotrophic uh, lakes that age into mesotrophic and eutrophic, and fish behaviors uh, are all similar within that. And uh, by looking at angling that way, uh, it allows you to go pretty well anywhere and figure it out. You know, most fly anglers are not very good at that at all.
1: Yeah, um, we're going to talk about that because. When I think of you, I think of you as a fly fisher, but I really do think of you as an all-rounded angler because, well, you are. So before we dive into talking about fisheries and skill and all that fun stuff, um, when you broke free and started doing your own television show, what was the biggest surprise to you with all of that? (laughs) I know it was a long time ago, but...
2: Well... You have to understand, I've been producing TV shows for many years prior to me going out on my own, where I did a lot of the shooting myself. Uh, I, I'd rather shoot myself. I really enjoy being on the side of the camera that's poking out. I have to fish. Uh, but no, not too many surprises um, because I didn't have any preconceived ideas. You have to be have a preconceived idea kind of to be surprised i think
1: yeah yeah it's true so you had the show for 25 years
2: um some somewhere like that
1: i guess yeah good. i was
2: surprised about one thing i was surprised at how easy it was to catch some like certain fish that uh, were i was you what's big you know the hunt for big fish what's big well the only way to look at, okay, what's a world record that must be big. And in many cases, they were, are fish that were ignored and so on, but many that weren't, and I was actually surprised. Uh, the first time I went, I thought, well, I'm going to go, I had to, I got, I had some stuff figured out. In fact, I've got a lot of stuff figured out that I have not necessarily shared because of various reasons that wouldn't, well, I had this thing figured out with big Lakers. So I thought I'd go with flies and, uh, in the first short period of time, uh, I got every line class record. Uh, and in the time it took me to go back to shore and be dicking around, weighing it and measuring it and doing what I was doing, I could have caught five or more of them. And I thought, you know, this is really silly. And it'd be better just to, okay, the records of this, here's this. I don't, I'm I going to register this thing, mess around with it. I'll just figure this out. Because you can't figure it out when you're sitting there on the bank. you got to continue and make sure that what you did wasn't an accident. It has to be repeatable. Otherwise, it doesn't count. It becomes superstition. And superstition has no place uh, in angling. Uh, So anyway, um, that surprised me um, how simple it was to uh, break a lot of these, uh, uh, to, to do that. That surprised me.
1: Okay, so you went to how many different countries? Did you take the show to when we were before we were rolling? You said you well, went to eighty-nine
2: I, I, countries. I through eighty-nine of them, I think at last count. Uh, how many we've shot in wouldn't be that many because a lot of them are these little African countries that you go popping through. I've been to Africa. I don't remember how many times, like more than twenty. I think twenty-eight or something.
1: I saw that you fished for Nile perch when people asked me my bucket list. That's one of my trips. Is it worth? Is it worth going on? Or is it a species worth targeting, or is it overrated?
2: Nile perch are the first place I fished was Lake Victoria. Uh, I think that's second to Lake Superior in terms of size, and uh, just one arm of a weenham Bay. I could write a book about my trip to uh, Lake Victoria. As a matter of fact, um, caught a ton of them there. Uh, speed trolling uh, crushed them actually. Uh, I found huge schools of them on extended fingers. Uh, Their uh, movements uh, were related to the Seiche effect that's created by that uh, Chiraco that comes off of the desert. Every day uh, in the morning, uh, the desert starts to warm and it creates a thermal that rises and uh, wind blows like crazy. It equalizes out sometime around noon, but it'll create uh, almost 18 inches of tide that blows up into this big arm. And then when that runs out, there's a uh, secondary fingers uh, off of this big arm uh, wean bay that are adjacent to the main body of the lake. They have uh, big concentrations of perch on them that uh, crushed them, speed trolling in uh, maybe 18 to 30 feet of water on these uh, shelf stair steps. And then there's other ones that go out and uh, suspend uh, near, uh, you know, structural elements, uh, behave a lot like any other uh, freshwater fish. Uh, I had a boat that was a uh, hollowed out canoe that had to be 30 feet long that took a football field to turn around in. And uh, I lost a couple real, real big ones we so were over, well over 100 pounds because uh, I couldn't get the boat turned there. Uh, the behavior of the fish uh, fished them in the reservoir uh, above uh, Aswan. And uh, we caught, caught one there that was, uh, I bet it was two and a quarter, 225 pounds probably. Uh, and then a lot of, uh, smaller ones. Uh, those, uh, were related to, uh, uh mid-lake, uh, stuff and, uh, they were pre-spawn. It was February. The th- uh, lower third of the re- reservoir in the middle were all pre-spawn fish. The top third, uh, the big fish we caught was actually a post-spawner, which is very, very interesting. Uh, and their, their behavior is, uh, yeah. They're migratory. Uh, they chase various uh, types of stuff around. I, I don't know the creature that they eat. I don't know its name, but it looks like a baby tarpon with the real big ones. Eat. But it depends on the time of year. There's weed patches. I mean, I could, I'd have to draw this. Uh, the people I first fished with, okay. And the ass one, the guys are blind. Most of the people, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm not bragging man, but I'm with a guy First, we—I'd I'd get out the map. I tell, show me. Do you know? He says, No, no. The map is here. I'm like, okay, fine. We fish for three days and we don't get a bite. Three days of uh, ten hours a day, and and, I, and he's driving and he's got this goofy boat that they build right there that tip over really easily. They're made out of steel, and he's got a uh, some goofy motor on it that's half diesel and half. Uh, uh, gas so at low speed uh, it's running on one higher the other I've never seen one like that so it had a, you know as it would uh, transfer so anyway and I've got a depth a real depth finder with me but we're using his little uh, toy and I finally pulled him my side I said man you know I've been doing this quite a while and I've never never really failed we've come here a long time to- ways you've had three days we haven't caught a fish uh if you keep driving and we don't catch anything, it'll be your fault. If you let me drive and we don't catch anything, it'll be my fault. Uh, hmm. So I convinced him to let me drive. And so, you know, I set up my a real depth finder. And I first thing happened, you got to find the river channel. When you're in a reservoir, where the hell is a river channel? And it's February. So I know it's you know winter and there are there's things that happen. There's this really weird deal that happens at the, uh, and I haven't got it totally figured out yet, but it's got to do with the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Things that happen inside of that, movements are dictated by high water, low water. You get north and south of that, they're dictated by temperature and seasonal changes and water fluctuations. And it is a fascinating thing. Anyway, that's a whole nother where was I going? Um. Anyway, I just, pop straight out until where's the river channel we roll out i hit like 350 er, so i hit the you know i'm following this river channel going along going along looking for you know trying to get some you know picture in my head of what's what because i do have a map of what it looked like before they flooded it so i know where the old cataracts those are rapids were and so on and anyway we're cruising along and he's starting to grumble you know because we're out in the middle of nowhere he thinks and then I see this big, big uh, wind line and this bubble line. And then some, some, just like a, on a North Dakota reservoir where there'd be a big mud line coming off of an island. And I'm on the channel, man. And it looks to me like this. I'm going to hit an outside bend on a river channel. That's like, you know, my, my, my spidey sense, my, the bites of fish. And they tell me my tail wiggles sometimes again <laughs> on, you know, uh, yeah, they're going to be here <laughs> I'm telling you, I, they're they're up here and i'm looking ahead about a mile and he's no nile percher never never to the, did, did that and he's this he bunch of horses stuff so. so we get there i was like mom mom, mom 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 i'm seeing these great big hooks on the screen they're as big as my eyebrows but they're down like 85 and uh i just stopped the boat and I dug through a bunch of stuff and I had some wire. I always brought a spool of wire line with me, you know, a, a stranded wire, seven strand. And I I, I hooked up a, because you could take, I, we used to speed troll 40 feet of water with spoon plugs with this stuff. And it's right underneath the boat because it doesn't stretch and it doesn't have any resistance. So you can fish, you can get your 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 gear right underneath you and you could be moving real quick. So anyway, I cranked the transducer at just a little bit uh, so I could anticipate. I hooked up this wire and he, this guy thinks I'm nuts. I come spinning around the first time to boom. We get one about 80 pounds, get it up. Oh, yeah. And then I uh, hooked one up uh, for my wife, uh, another setup, and we had doubles boom, 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 boom. And we just crushed them. And uh, nothing giant though, just you know, I mean, big 85, 65, 90, but just one after the other. And then uh, from then on, uh, we caught him every day, just really, really railed on him. Uh, and I found out after the guy, to him, he thought Nile Perch were like lions. He was describing to be that they would hide behind a rock and then come out and pounce and then go back. And he, they're solitary creatures. And, it, and he just, it was pretty fun.
1: Well, when do you put down the fly rod and pick up the bait rod?
2: Well, that's really simple. Why was a fly rod designed? You tell me. As a weightless object that I cannot get to a fish any other way. That's what a fly rod was designed for.
1: So with that philosophy then, which is sounds about right, how do you feel about fishing big-weighted streamers? Does that kind of defeat the purpose?
2: Hmm. <laughs> um, I, downstairs I have a toolbox I've got a uh, screwdrivers, wrenches, crescent wrenches, um, socket wrenches, hammers, they all have purposes. Um, I can actually sometimes take my jackknife if I don't have a screwdriver and actually unscrew a screw with the sharp side of my jackknife might make it dull and i might wreck the screw or even break the blade off my knife but oh now it's even a better screwdriver
1: <laughs> so
2: I'm, I'm being a little facetious um, i know <laughs> what happens all right it's more fun if you're good at casting a fly There's nothing more fun than just then winging a fly and me and going to the tree and around the corner. And Um, and it's fun to fight a fish on a fly rod, Um, boingity, boingity, boing. Um, It's fun. Now, are we fishing for dinner or are we fishing for fun? There are times where I can catch dinner more effectively on a fly rod than I can on anything. Um, so to me, it's, it's a tool. That's all. Um, it's as simple as that. Growing up, I fly fished maybe 5% of the time. I guide when I was guiding people. The only people my dad would let me guide were fly fishermen. He said, cause they won't come back without you. They won't even know where they were. Um, and he was a little insulting, but he didn't understand that they were, they're were they just doing it because they want to bite, you know. Uh, some of my favorite people that I ever fly fished with, there was a fellow named Crawford Johnson, Roman numeral three. Uh, Crawford's the guy that introduced Billy Pate to tarpon. They went to school together. Uh, Crawford was the grandson or the great-grandson of one of the founders of the Coca-Cola company, the Snyder. Family. And what Crawford used to love to do is go down and fish tarp and then just like break the, like don't even put, like bend it, break it off right behind the bar and just jump them two or three times and make them go away. And uh, he would tell me that. And as a kid, I would just shake my head. I could not figure out why anyone would ever want to do anything like that. Well, I certainly understand it now. I want to see (laughs) him jump. (laughs)
1: Huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that fly fishers don't tend to find fish the way that maybe conventional guys do.
2: Oh uh, no, no, no! I wouldn't say. Well, conventional guys sometimes have trouble too, um, but fly fishermen tend to beat up on a spot for a long time rather than go ring a lot of doorbells. And it's and it's because of a bug. It's it's a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, in in fly fishing, okay, all right. I this will make it easy. You know what a Venn, You know how a Venn diagram works, where you make a circle and another circle overlaps it. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the whole world of fish, you got fish that eat each other. You got fish that eat bugs, and it overlaps. Crabs, shrimp, um, are bugs in the saltwater world. Bugs don't have the ability to fight a heavy current. Most fish that you are trying to fool with a bug, the single most important element other than coming relatively close in terms of size and maybe color, is executing a drag free drift into a cube of space, the size of which when a fish goes, it goes in. And if you're good at doing that, (laughs) you can crush these goofy bug-eating creatures, especially if they don't know you are after them. Once they know you're after them, every time you make a cast, it'll make them harder to catch next time you come back. But the world of bugs, I mean, that's what it's about. You improve it over and 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 I have a zillion times. People think it's the leader they see. Sometimes it is. Usually the leader, the thickness of the leader causes water to catch it and then it screws up your drag-free drift and all that, and the fluorocarbons and the yitty yitty yitty. It just it doesn't, you know, the key thing is a drag-free drift. Okay. Now the other side of it is 180 degrees. Where it's the speed, it's the movement. If you go back and read the the great the um uh uh, uh Isaac Newton of angling is an old physics professor named Elwood L. Perry, Buck Perry. And he invented a method of angling called spoon plugging. He also invented the term structure fishing, cover as it relates to angling, and so on. Okay. He's the guy that figured out most of what, what I think is the main body of knowledge in all of angling. And most people haven't even ever heard of him. Combine that with the early-in fish stuff, that's the basis of modern angling, uh, really. Uh, But anyway, speed and uh, size, um, erratic action tend to trigger fish that are fish that eat each other. Oftentimes people say, oh, it's the wounded. Mm, A panic-stricken fish is more likely to be eaten than a wounded, barely alive one. Um, also uh, take non-mechanical erratic action as opposed to a steady mechanical action oftentimes that's a trigger that a, a, a large predator watch this other thing go by and then I mean you've you, seen it thousands of times in my lifetime so there isn't any doubt about it and so you have these two worlds that are 180 degrees apart from each other
0: okay.
2: the fly rod as a tool it gives me a huge advantage in one area and a big disadvantage in another. So do you want to, I can beat you with one hand tied behind me? Is that the game we want to play? Or I'm just going to catch and get, and then catch another one and another one, another one. So I can catch, if I want to catch a great big one, the odds say I'm going to need to catch 200 fish to catch one really big one. Okay, I better get busy. Because there are sometimes that the prime lie isn't always where the big, you have to just, you just have to get through it. And if your goal is to catch a truly large one, you cannot screw around.
1: So if you're going after bass, and I'm just thinking about my own experience here because... Kind
2: of bass, largemouth or smallmouth?
1: Well, I'm actually going to, I'm talking Australian bass right now, um, just because it's what I've been fishing for right now. But let's go ahead and talk smallmouth. Uh, and I'm, I'm just thinking because my husband fishes a Sammy. You know, the little Sammies?
2: No. Uh, they're like, they're
1: a hard plastic lure and they're really expensive. And when he reels it in, this thing kind of, it's, it's just a topwater lure. And I fish one of your flies, which we'll talk about later. Um, if you're fishing for a, a top, if you're fishing a topwater pattern for an aggressive fish, and the whole goal is to keep it up in the water column and also, you know, strip it off of lily pads. Would you prefer a baitcaster or would you go with a fly rod? Because with your way of thinking, it seems like you'd want to go... Like a fly might make more sense.
2: The uh, How big are these creatures?
1: Good question. Three, two to four pounds.
2: Okay. So... A fly rod, when I hook them, some of them, if they go, wah, wah. I'm going to have to go in and get them. Right? I can't just yank them out of there.
1: Well, it depends. It depends where we're fishing. but in, in, And it depends on the tide, and it depends if there's bull, right, bull sharks around.
2: Oh, is it an a, a, a estuary type thing? hmm oh, And there's lily pads growing in that uh, saline water?
1: Well, just up at the dam.
2: Oh, okay. See, I'm getting a picture of this because I I don't see the salt water and the lily pads going together. Here's what the deal is: those fish are living underneath those pads that they've they've got a, a canopy over them. Okay, as opposed to a jungle that's going to have to have alleyways through it. Those are short, blunt fish. That's why you're calling them bass, right? Yeah, correct. They're designed to turn corners. They're they're Good. designed to. Amp. Fish. they're not they are, long yeah. thin fish so they live underneath a can- canopy you throw something in there all fish um, I think that something that's really important some I call the zone of awareness uh, they've got a zone of awareness uh, that is a, has a certain size and a certain shape it's uh, auditory uh, it's a uh, visual and uh, it's even um, all depending on some species that's how salmon find where they're going to go um, some of them even have uh, electro uh, sensors. Uh, paddlefish can sense uh, um, plankton, <laughs> the electricals.
1: <laughs> oh, that's amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, and sturgeon. It's the ampullae Lorenzini. They get this deal. But anyway, there's a zone of awareness. Here we have this little creature who is an ambush predator. He's living underneath a canopy. Uh, he's got a Sun going back and forth back and forth every day it starts in the morning comes up he's got a big long shadow headed this way and then that shadow will rotate around and get shorter and shorter and shorter at noon what he'll do is find the place that's related to wherever he's sitting where that little shadow thing is, and you if if that and you can actually watch this little goofy little fellow move around sometimes during the day very very slowly to adjust to that now if he's only, depending on how deep he is, his zone of awareness is a cone above his head where his, uh, uh, you know, where his eyes are. And then he's got this auditory thing, depending on if the bottom's real hard or bottom's real soft, uh, depends on how big of an effect that, that has. If it's real hard, you can hear it for a long ways. If it's soft, you can't. Anyway, um, in that kind of a uh, situation, what you want to do, have it land, make a noise. I like bio, but, uh, divers, the, as opposed to just one, but, but, but it, it has to, it makes a noise. There'll be a clicking noise if it hits the pad. If it lands on the pad, we had a mic underwater. It actually sounds like a click, but it, that'd be, that be thats boom, land, make something move, stop. He's got a certain visual zone and it's got to be in it. Uh, you can run it through it quick. What I would do, what I usually do first, is fish real fast to find out if they really live there. And a deal like that, I'd have something with an up hook, and I'd probably use something that I'd call a, a slider or a skipper. Uh, uh, but move, move, and then stop for some period of time. That type of a fish will oftentimes orient himself, would wait, 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 sit and watch it for some length of time, and then. Boom. If he's, in a, if he's in a group, then I'd, I'd move probably very quickly, you know, if, they, if they're groups of fish. And they'll sometimes have a movement in that type of habitat where they'll just start going on patrol on the edges of it, and they'll flush bait out of it. But other times they'll just sit there. And, and so it just depends. But usually in that cover, um, letting it sit for a bit uh, in bass-type creatures, especially uh, largemouth, is a good idea.
1: It has but been a good not. idea. And, and no, your fly. No. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there.
2: No, that's
1: okay. Um, your fly has landed me every single one that I have caught. It's super tidal based, so it's and it's a kind of it's a funky stream because it's yeah, it's tidal pay based and it's a dam and um they're not really bass. They're almost like an almost like an estuary perch. But anyway, um let's talk a little bit about the Dalberg Diver. How did that fly come to be?
2: Hmm. Well, uh, it started out, um, there's a, uh, there's this grizzly old guy that came up to help build a, a fire tower you know, where had built these lookout towers so you could look for forest fires back in the old days. And he was from somewhere in southern Wisconsin, and he uh, had a fishing pal named Frank Suwick. Mister Suick invented a lure; it's known as a Suick, and it uh, it's a musky lure. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a very, very famous. Musky lure been around forever. It has a metal tail in the back, and when you pull it, it dives, and then it it, it dives like this, kind of hovers, and then it it rises, and he brought one of these things up. My dad, I, he, we'd never seen one before in every place, man, phew, these muskies that had never seen this sewage just came up and ate it. And it just, as a kid, I was like, whoa. And, um, it, I remembered that. And anyway, I was living on a, uh, on a lake, bigwood uh, big wood lake. And, uh, there was a large month I was trying to catch on a popper. And, uh, had come up and, make a big wake and then kind of sit there with these fins doing this um and not eat it it was driving me nuts and what I wanted to do was make a suick. I wanted to make a a fly that way I could get to dive and then come back up again and um, um I was trying all sorts of stuff and I always made kites and I made, I made, made stuff as a, as a little kid. So I had a pretty good understanding of aerodynamics and so on and so on. And, and man, if I make it so that he couldn't cast it, then I had this idea. You know, I was using deer and it, it was semi-flexible. So I made this, uh, shape out of, a, a deer hair. And, um, I had a long shank Aberdeen hook, like an old Eagle claw. You just, Band, you um, know, I made this thing. I went out and it's a little short dock. I flipped it in the water, blue, boo, it looked good. I jumped in the boat, took off to where this 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 fish was, made a cast, and this thing came out after, and then went kind of a long strip. It just you know how sometimes a wake just kind of goes up and it folds over and I caught it. And it was a six-pound, seven-ounce largemouth. And, uh, uh, he was like, yeah. And so let's see, I must've been, hmm, I can't remember the age I was, but that same day I was guiding Bert Cross, who was the president of 3M who that guy I mentioned earlier. Right. And I'm on a, on the river and we, uh, and he had his pal with him. And we went down this uh, place we call the slough and, uh, I'd given his buddy a fly, just it was a tin I called them tinsel flies. I had also developed a material called, uh, later became called flashaboo, and I was the only one that had it. And uh, I invented flashaboo. You probably didn't know that.
1: I had and, no idea. I'm dumbfounded uh, right now.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, were i also thought i invented the muddler i'd never seen a muddler, but i'd made i'd had this tinsel that's a whole another story of where that came from it was a lady that couldn't catch a fish and we found but anyway uh, anyway i'd given a fly to his buddy and uh we had this deal if you caught a three and a half pound uh smallmouth you'd get on on a fly you're on the honor roll and it was fly fishing only club so i'd given his buddy it was a crummy fisherman one of these uh Flies and and he catches a three and three quarter pounder. He's on the honor roll. Bert, who's been in the club for several years, this guy's, his get, Bert's never caught an honor roll. And so he's putting the heat on me because, you know, I hate to Bert, Bert. Okay, tell you what, I'll pull you up the mouth and there's a big stair step there and it is a mother to do. But the last mile or so is some of the best smallmouth fishing anywhere in this region and so when i pull him up, up up this thing we get this beautiful beautiful eddy at the end of a 12 mile long run of fast water you know where they, it's just it's super and he throws his uh he's got his popper or whatever the hell he's using he's throwing it out and he's t- man not getting bit <laughs> and i dig in my box and i pick up this soggy diver the first one ever made that i caught the six pounds, seven ounce on when the sun was coming up in the morning and I'm squeezing it and blowing on it and it smells really stinky, like a large mouth, you know, how bad they smell compared to a small moth, you know? And I said, Bert, give me, give me a line. And, I, and I'm tying this on, I says, you try this. And he says, what in the hell is that supposed to be?
1: <laughs>
2: and I just, just throw it out there. And, uh, uh, it was a diver with a, big gold uh, flashaboo tail. And Bert was using a, well, back then they owned Cy Anglers, and, and he had a, a Cy Angler System 10. Those were built, those are great rods. They were built, uh, they were hardy rods. I think that J.K. Fisher actually made the blanks. They're really great, great rods, spigot ferals Anyway, uh, Bert fires this thing out, this big sloppy 10 wake. And it, the line is getting, you know, he's just tightening up his line. And then the, the current catches the line a little, and when he gives it a pull, and it goes bloop. And Bloof, a smallmouth hits it, and he gives it a big yoke. And and uh, the fly comes back and lands in the wrong side of the river. And then he spins around in his chair, and he's going to tighten up again. And blam, another one hit it. And he caught that one, and we're landing it. And he says, Larry, I think you got something here. Yeah, that was the beginning of the of the diver, and that's why I made it.
1: So, did nothing else like that exist at the time?
2: No, not even not even close. People thought of flies as lures; they weren't thinking of them as uh, dynamic objects. And there was only a number, a, a small number of uh, popper heads uh, available. And uh, I don't know; people just didn't think about stuff that way.
1: So have I been fishing it wrong the whole time? I, I've been enjoying your sound effects. And at one point when you were imitating how it sounds in the water, you almost went, don't make fun of me here, but it, it was like...
2: Burr, 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 burr. Yeah, you can make it. It depends how? on the call. I've never done a video or done it. I think I did one video on the in-fisherman. Uh, we did a fly fishing for pike thing way long ago. And then, oh boy, I don't even remember when. And I showed how I tie a a mega diver. But other than that, I've never written an article or uh, done any videos on the variations. Uh, There's many, you know, it's a concept. It's a diving lip. Uh, We've got crankbaits, you know, they have many diving lips, different depth and stuff, uh, but it's flexible. And that's uh, one of the, you can make it flexible. Yeah. and so you can make it do different things, and one of the one of the things that's really effective is just a long strip so you get a long bubble chain. That bubble chain is so 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 visible, it's ridiculous, and it uh, makes the, it's it's a real effective trigger oftentimes.
1: yeah, because when I strip it back, it's a big bloop bloop, and it creates such a bubble that I mean it 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 literally separates the water around it as it's coming forward so are you are you saying? That to make it go, that it's in how it's fished or how it's tied?
2: Both. 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 The collar has to say supported. And then you pull, if you pull it far enough, you'll get a a chain, a strip, a string of bubbles.
1: Wow. And can you actually? uh, Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And then a lot of times, one of the most effective ways, uh, oh, uh, if I was like, Let's say I'm fishing uh, steelhead, and they're pretty aggressive sometimes. And especially, uh, you know, what a, a, you can make them be aggressive, and it hasn't got to do with them, them wanting to be aggressive. It's them, you pushing them with something. It's like hot shotting, you know, a hot shot where you take a diving lure, you put them behind your boat, start at the top end of the pool, and you kind of, Back down, over down, over down, over, and you get them into the tail out, and they'll come up and uh, snap at the at the uh, bait. But it's got to be making bottom contact. The bottom I contact.
1: I think it's illegal now, but <laughs> yes.
2: Okay, it's highly effective. I and bet. I, well, so I'll take a diver, put it on a sinking line. I'll make a diver that wants to dive six inches on a floating line now i'll take that a sinking line let the line lay make the line be on the bottom and then strip and the fly will want to go six inches deeper than the line is and so the fly goes grung, 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 grind, grinds into the bottom if you get oop it's stuck stuck you just give a little slack and a little bit of a shake and oop, it floats back up again so you can actually make bottom contact and uh, grind it like a crankbait. And I've had incredible success doing that. Or on uh, in, uh, if we're on a weed line, in uh, you have lake natural lakes in Australia. Um, let's just, you know, view in your own mind. We're in uh, one foot, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight feet of water. It's a fairly clear body of water. We get into 10 feet of water and we have weeds rooting in 10 feet, but we get deeper than 10 feet, we don't have any weeds left, Right. We have it's called a weed line, and then we follow that weed line is on a break line that's got a certain shape to it. And there'll be maybe there will be a little point sticking out, and there's a little bunch of fish hanging there. And I'm wanting to want to fish that 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 weed line. And sometimes as the as the as the day is changing and so on, the fish will suspend up like that, or sometimes it'll be right at the base of the weed line. And what I can do is get parallel. Let's say I've got a, a Eight, eight foot weed line i could take a 10 foot put on a 10 foot leader a sinking line and you want to make bomber gas all your fly line parallel to the weed line let the fly line hit the bottom your fly is still on the surface makes a strip you can let it go back up or you can go strip 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 strip, strip. and the fly will swim all the way down and bump the bottom now we can stop and the fly will go head up and slowly go all the way back to the surface so you could fish a 8 or 10 foot water column um, or you could there's a number of things that you can do you can use it as a reference um, where you how can I put it Okay, if we're uh, trying to, we're in 20 feet of water, there are 10, there are fish 10 feet below the surface. I take a floating line and a sinking fly. I throw it out, let it sink 10 feet. I can strip it. It comes up. I strip it, comes up. But in most cases, I get going with it and it's going to come up to, uh, it's to shell. Take a sinking line, sinking fly, throw it out, let it sink. Uh, I'm hung up all the time. I don't know where I'm at. I can take a Floating fly, sinking line, and then a leader that's 10 feet long. And in 20 feet of water, keep that fly either somewhere between the bottom and that 10-foot area. And a floating diving fly or a dive, any floating fly, fished on a sinking line with a leader that's appropriate length to put it where you need it in the water column. Um, fishing depths, 20 feet and shallower, it's a pretty effective method.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Do you fish it on a baitcaster as well or just on a fly rod? On a
2: fly rod. Gotcha. I I think, you know, there's uh, many other ways that I can accomplish. The diver is a modification of a fishing lure.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. uh,
2: You know, you just have to understand what you can get away with. If you start putting too much weird stuff on them, uh, you hit yourself in the head with the fly, and that's no fun. You know, if, if it isn't fun to cast a fly, I ditch it. Fly fishing for me, I love to do it. It's fun to cast, unless you got a fly you're fighting with. It. Then it's not simple.
1: How do you how do you feel about all the variations that are now on the market of your fly?
2: Oh, I'm deeply flattered. Um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery.
1: Mm-hmm. You're quite the inventor, and I wanted to ask you about this real. I think I read something about a real handle.
2: Oh, uh, it's not a. Hand, it's a fishing rod handle. Oh. Yeah, many years ago. Uh, oh boy. Back in the old days, conventional, uh, conventional outfits, bait casting outfits, had offset handles. And they had a, a, a ferrule made by the Featherweight Company, most of them, made out of aluminum, and then the blank chucked inside of it. At the time, a bass, one of those things, if I put pressure on it, uh, they would shear at 12 or 14 pounds of pressure. And the whole system weighed somewhere probably 14 ounces or so with the handle and the so on. And then uh, Lou Childrey brought the uh, Fuji system from Japan um, over here. They actually had a sumo wrestler in a phone in the. <laughs> it's unbelievable. They had a great big pan reel. <laughs> the the foot, the the fishing rod, put it in a in a uh, holder like deal, and then the rod had a rope kind of. You know, heavy, heavy line going through it went down through a pulley, and then this sumo wrestler glass booth cracking, kabawowie, it would explode, and show how many pounds. And then they'd put the Fuji handle on it, do the same thing, when it would break it like 20 pounds instead. They closed him down at the ICAST show, and uh, they made him put. Other people, that when the, what they do is take the browning rod of the Fenwick rod, put it in the Fuji system, and it was actually stronger than the Fuji rod, but it was the, the ferrule. And so I saw this, and that was interesting. And uh, during this period of time when I was at the retail sporting goods store, I'd started uh, rod building stuff. And I was studying actions of rods and uh, how many pounds you would get uh, with uh, under how much pressure. And uh, how many pounds I would give away? Uh, you know, I lift this much. I only get this much as it gets longer and longer. And then I was studying the uh, impact curve when you set hooks, uh, and the rods we were using had a, a parabolic taper, and uh, they were quite stiff. But what would happen? That it would be a real all steady curve before you put pressure on they weren't good at setting hooks on a muskie which has a lot of teeth they'd bite down a wooden bait and you have to have a boom impact so i i found these actions that were popping rod shafts uh, that were like eight and a half feet long i take a section of them and they were stiffer in the butt i have to remember we had fiberglass then and uh had a, a different curvature at the tip that would actually produce a bump where if i had a curve it looked like that where boom you'd get a, a much sharper impact at hook set uh you couldn't get as much total pressure if you wind down and pull and wind and pull because the rod doesn't bend down to the butt but it would give you a pop and they were also really lightweight because they had thin walls and they were large diameter and anyway it was a, a rage uh, everybody was uh wanting them but you had to build them with a straight handle because the, the uh, systems, the ferrule systems weren't large enough to accommodate this fat blank. So um, my dad didn't like the straight handles. And so I wanted to make him one of these rods because they were so much better. Then Lou Childrey, Fuji came out with the um, a ferrule that was large enough to fit it, how wonderful. Built one, take a fish and he has a fish strike, he's lure, he sets and it <laughs> breaks off at the ferrule. Well, the Fuji ferrule was better because it was seeding over a period this long. The feather white, feather white ferrule had a little thing that was three-eighths of an inch solid aluminum and then a little uh, sleeve that the blank went in. The Fuji was fatter back here so the blank would seed over about four inches except on the new big one, which only seated at the end, and it was too fat to actually plug all the way in. And so it's not gonna work. So I'm scratching my head, and all of a sudden, bing, I get an idea. What I did was got big fat corks, and instead of having it drilled in the middle, I plugged the middle, and I drilled it way off in the edge. So now I've got an offset cork way up high on a shaft that went through. Hmm. And we just, oh, I could offset them in different direct, different amounts and make it look like an actual pistol grip. You know, it was like an optical illusion with a blank going through, but you still had the same effect because relatively it was recessed relative to the cork. So you had the same feel as a offset handle but the blank went all the way through it well instead of weighing 14 ounces it weighs three and a quarter ounces and it breaks at like 28 pounds whoa yeah so we got a group together we i had a friend uh who i'd met while i was at the store who was uh not he was involved in this stock business and various stuff you know it's far over my head we started this little company, we raised a little bit of money, and we got a patent on this. And uh, then they took it to a group of investors. It's called a, a private placement or something. There's a limited number of people that get to see it, and so on. And I'd drawn up a marketing plan where I could take helium balloons, about the size a little bigger than your head, and tie them onto my rods, and they would float in the air. And then I could take the same helium balloons and tie them to anybody else's fishing rods, and they'd lay it on the ground. And that was the how we were going to display them. And so anyway, it's the night before the big. what It was called Afterma back then, not ICAST. And the night before that, I'm in a hotel room, and I've got uh, Jerry Gibbs, who was outdoor writer, for, uh, main writer for uh, Outdoor Life, super super guy, and uh, Mark Sosen. And I can't remember if Lefty was there or not. I think so. And one other writer who I don't remember, and I, we showed him this, and they just thought, oh, my God, that's the greatest innovation in 90 years. That's unbelievable. And um, <laughs> we walk into the show that morning as it opens, and I look in the background And way in the back corner, I see helium balloons floating all over the place. And there's fishing rods hanging. I go look, and there's the Berkeley Lightning Rod. In the first year, we wanted, I think, 25 cents a rod royalty to use this. And um, first year, I think there was $85 million worth of infringing product. Uh, My partner in this, fellow named John Brackett, somewhere has a letter, a file from the head of the Rod and Real Committee, a man named Joe Coody, uh, was president, I think, of Shakespeare at the time, saying, "Well, yeah, this is an important innovation, and uh, but if we all stick together and ignore them, they, there's probably nothing they can do about it." And so I sort of got a well, you know, I've kind of thought that might happen, and I uh, decided I was going to kind of tuck things away, uh, probably till I get old enough to defend a patent. So I hadn't, uh, and I did copyright flashaboo thank goodness and a lot of people have tried to knock that off but we've been able to maintain a pretty good position in that got some neat new stuff coming out actually with flashaboo but anyway i went years and then i you know in the tv show um one one day i decided you know i make so many of my own lures i wonder if the viewers would be interested in that um i made a, a thing I called a June spoon. My granddaughter had just been born. And uh, you know, as you know, tarpon like to jump and get off. And uh, we're catching them on jigging spoons. So I made these spoons with a hole through. So you slide the line through, hook it up, fish bites, the jig slides up the leader. So I've got his hook in them, so you don't have that three ounces of weight flopping around. And we showed how to do that on TV and started a little um, workshop segment within the the show and people really liked it. I got more letters about that than I did about anything else I'd ever put on. So we started this make lure thing and then I started pulling some things out of a one of my young fishing buddies was using a plopper type lure. And I said, Josh, I've got an idea. I've had it in my head for years how to make a better one of these things. And I made a thing with a much larger tail and there's a, a different way that you bend them that I'd figured out when I was a little kid that makes a pop it set up a flip flip sound and uh i made him one and uh i think he, i don't know he caught three four muskies on it the first day and just crushed fish with it and then it turned into the whopper plopper which um i don't know it's I'm a, a pretty uh, a lot of people use it for a lot of stuff so yeah i like making stuff i got a whole bunch of neat stuff that uh, i haven't shown it. it's got some stuff i don't even dare show anybody actually
1: well, I bet you, yeah, you're probably a little bit gun-shy now. Why did you stop the show?
2: Um, uh, You know, I got old, and I got tired, and um, it got more and more uh, difficult to uh, get it all done. Uh, it was important for me uh, to do it, as, to do the best that I could do um, as uh, the years moved on. Uh, the people that sponsored these things wanted to wait longer and longer to make commitments. When I started doing this, i get commitments in January, for sure commitments, so I could operate on a budget and produce material that I'm going to edit um, the following uh, November and December, perhaps. When you start getting commitments in July, it's pretty difficult to put together a good string of shows. Using July, August, September, October. When am when am I going to edit? Uh, if you're going to be an effective angler, you have to understand calendar periods, and you need to go when when your odds are the best. And well, if you're, t- <laughs> it just, it made it nearly impossible. And yeah. and I'd seen what I kind of wanted to see. I've uh, I had certain goals. I want to figure things out. Um, I don't. I don't know, for, for me, I need to understand the program. I need to go there and be able to have repeatability and understand. I I, I fished because I'm interested kind of in the natural world and how all of it is hooked together. And I like to, I, I don't know, it's an existential thing. I'm not comfortable unless I've got a kind of a grip on it. And I need to be there for a little bit, you know. I always like to see, you know, what the other people have done. You know, let the natives, the natives always have an excuse where you should have been here or there, but they don't figure it out, you know, but it's good to hang with them two or three days, see what they want to do. And then as you're going, I always hook up my depth finder so I'm watching so I know where we are. And then you put the puzzle pieces together, ring the doorbell, the guy's home proves you both exist. What a relief. <laughs>
1: So what's your next goal then? Because it, I mean, you're, you are obviously highly analytical. You're very smart. You're clearly goal driven. I don't know if you're, are, are you that driven these days or are I've you never, kind of
2: retired? Oh, I like making stuff. Um, yeah. It's yeah sure I like it's- I enjoy, what I enjoy more now is uh, kind of anglers go through a lot of different, stages you know You first you know i just want to catch a fish uh, next stage maybe i want to catch a limit next stage is i want to catch a great big one uh next stage is i want to catch one how i want to catch one that's maybe where the fly anchor would come in and then i've had a stage where i i enjoy sharing and that's a dumb because I'm, it's not really that I like to go there where I know they are and take people that I enjoy being with that may or may not. And I do enjoy fishing with really skilled anglers, but I enjoy fishing with people that may be not so skilled that are enjoying it as long as they're serious about it. And that doesn't mean you're frowning. It just means don't dick around. I mean, really. You know, we're fishing here and it's fun to laugh and giggle, but let's not over do the laughing and giggling. We're still fishing here. Let's so the next time we don't have, we can do it right. You know, not right, but we don't have that same problem or, you know, whatever. There's a,
1: you know. There's a time and a place. <laughs> so where what are you doing nowadays? Are you, you're not taking people out. Are you, are you hosting trips? What are you doing?
2: Yeah. I mean, I've never done that. I just, I like I said, I fish with my three friends, and in the since COVID, you know, I hadn't. I was in Trinidad when uh, the COVID thing broke out. That's the last place I've been out of the country. That was exactly two years ago, one week ago. So I spent the last uh, couple of summers just hanging, hanging around home. Had a really a lot of fun last summer. I actually was was counting them. I think we boated a hundred and seven muskies and didn't really fish all that many days but really had a lot of fun days uh they're all fun i look forward to them every, i mean i'm i don't know what's wrong with me <laughs> I, I get, uh, <laughs> sometimes i get bored but um it's snowing you, I, right I, now I've,
1: yeah
2: it's 65 four days ago here and it's snowing right now
1: that's cold. That is cold. We were just, I'm obviously Canadian and we were just back in Canada, December, January. And, uh, wow. I forgot how cold it gets.
2: Cold sucks. It yeah, sucks. Yeah. The is good. Yeah.
1: Can't even get out.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah we're going to have spring. We'll have spring in about two weeks.
1: Yeah. It's not far off. Um, yeah. well, look, I feel like I, I would like to ask you a lot more questions about um, specific fishing situations, but I won't do that now because it's late here and early for you. Uh, this is a really silly question, but how many have – you you've written books, yeah?
2: Um, let's see. I was involved with a couple of pretty boring ones. But, uh, no, I haven't uh, written a book yet.
1: You haven't written your own book yet?
2: No, I started – and I got a whole bunch of chapters done, actually kind of done, did it on a you know, recording thing, and then it spit it back out. And then when I went back into re-edit, it drove me nuts. And it happened uh, at a time, uh, my buddy, I had a friend in uh, South America, his name was Cesar Collar. We uh, shot a lot together. And uh, he got killed in a plane crash. And that kind of changed it as far as uh, – me writing the book it changed what it would be about in a a lot of ways what our plan was to do was go down and do the I was telling you about the that band of space between the two tropics where the seasons are dictated by uh, rainfall not by temperatures and what I wanted to do is uh, go down there with him he spoke five languages and uh, do kind of the same uh, you break down the Uh, Physical features, and you break down the seasonal things uh, as it relates to angling and uh, peacock bass, uh, Dorados, uh, Pihara. And I kind of wanted to go do that, and that would have been a you know something that would be a contribution to the body of knowledge, which is what that's what drives me. Uh, You ask the question. To me, it's just if you can add to the body of knowledge, that's the single most important. Thing because fishing is such a frivolous uh, activity anyway. You know, we could be out, you know, discovering a cure for cancer or a better way to grow weed, You know, if we're making a living uh, fishing.
1: Yeah, don't don't discredit yourself. I'd still buy your book. <laughs> I would absolutely love to read what you have to say. Um, well, listen, I'm going to let you. <laughs> I'm going to wrap this up. I know that uh, there's going to be a lot of questions. I can already see the comments now of why didn't you ask about bass fishing this? Why didn't you ask about thermocline this? Why didn't you ask about patterning this? Why? Did-? I can already see the questions rolling in.
2: Yeah, um, thermocline just- and turnover, turnover stuff is a mm-hmm. thing that people really don't understand very well at all. And uh, most of the information is is wrong.
1: Let let me let me bring you into that because that's actually something I'm also very curious about. Um, and I know you've got to go, but when it does come to, thermo, to the thermocline, did you want to just explain that uh, and your your thoughts on that?
2: Okay. It depends, of course, latitude and sun and water depth and all that kind of stuff. Let's just take a basin of a, a, a body of water, all right? And we're just going to talk thermocline, not talk about um, um, turnover, all right? All right, so it's a nice day, and the water is whatever it is. Let's pretend that it's 70 from top to bottom. And all of a sudden, it starts to get warm. And now it's 70 down a foot and down a foot and down a foot, and it starts to get warm. And it might be 45 underneath it. There will be an area that builds in between it that uh, the temperature drops at about a degree and a half per foot. That's a thermocline degree and a half per foot and then it's bang real hard after that and real steadily warm above that if the wind starts blowing that thermocline can just go away tomorrow right okay if it sets up uh, and the larger the body of the water is and the shape and the way the wind blows makes makes a difference but anyway it can set up and i've seen it happen very often here we're at 45 degrees north latitude Okay, and in uh, our our bodies of water uh, that have a thirty-five foot basin depth, it is not uncommon in August for that thermocline to have moved from somewhere at 10, 12, 15 feet, and it got wider, wider. And then that 70 degree or 78 or 75 degree water on top of it goes and it squashes it right down to the bottom. And there's no thermocline left. It's all just hot water from the top all the way to the bottom. So the thermoclines can be thick thin they can be set up over long periods of time Uh, usually they become most uh, important when you're in uh, larger bodies of water that have got a you know a little bit deeper basin depths than 30 or 40 and where you'll set up a two-story fishery where you've got a bunch of guys living under it and then you've got guys that are in it and and above it it just depends on how radical it is.
1: So what happens as that heat is starting to compress and press down. Where do the fish go?
2: (laughs) They, the ones that were above it are still above it and the ones that are below it just wind up being pressed to the bottom. If uh, a perfect example, in fact, that's a great question. Okay, let's say we want to catch a great big giant lake trout where it's the easiest time to catch them. We go to a body of water in uh, Saskatchewan, northern, uh, all you know, in the big lake trout zone, okay? And we're going to pick lakes that are 140, 150 foot maximum depth, and what we'll do is just run right out to the crack, go find the deepest crack in the lake, go there, and every single lake trout in the whole the lake, the, all the big ones are laying right there in that crack during that period of time, and it's the worst possible time of the year to try to catch them. And to get them, you'd have to use a ball of lead be bouncing it off the bottom. And we used to use big herring dodgers that were 24 inches long. There were dodgers that we'd use as lures and then you know put a big uh, hook on. And what that did was this system, the thermocline got pressed down to the bottom and it forced the fish that are second story fish to be down into the tiniest little cracks that are left. And so there's time that you can use it to your advantage. The other time that you would have caught these big giant lake trout is when the water temperature in the spring hits exactly 48 degrees. And at 48 degrees, they will be in those shallow water streams eating an arctic sucker that spawns there. At 52, they will be gone. There will be nothing. At 53, 48 to 52, they are there. You can jump up. You want to go catch a great big giant lake trout on a fly, jump in an airplane. You get a thermal... You know, those little things that you shoot at, a, you know, uh, laser uh, 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 temperature teller. It's a little laser, and you can shoot it against your water pipe, and it'll say degrees or against your, your manifold of your truck, and it'll tell you the temperature. You can jump in a float plane in the springtime when the ice is going out of these great big lakes. All right. Jump in a float plane and you run over the, the uh shallows and you run over the the uh, tributaries and you can take water temperatures. And and these fish are are so pinned. Uh, you'd be you'd be there every day at 47 at 48 degrees bam they're there just as certain as you are alive and and then there'll be a four degree swing and it might last a week it might last three days. Three days through there. Guaranteed 100%. 100%. And you can find these goofy things by doing that. And you get a lake that's 140 miles long. It would take you five days to try to sniff out with a boat. You can do it in a half an hour if you know what you're looking for.
1: Is this lake trout specific? Or all species?
2: Uh, the two, the temperature range that I gave you is lake trout specific. The sniffing technique <laughs> depends on what you're hunting for,
1: right? Dun dun dun! How, exci- how did you figure that out?
2: I don't know; It just came into my head. You First, we would land. Of- I just land the plane and go dig, dig, dig. You know, we land float the plane, but it's much quicker to just go by. Got did you. the same thing in Alaska. That's how we find this big giant pike in Alaska. Is, a, you know,
1: is there I, a magic temperature with muskie?
2: Of course. There's magic temperatures with everything having to do with their seasonal movements.
1: Will you share?
2: Which one are you looking for? Springtime? No, which time? Spring or fall? They're different. The fall. If running, you want to go catch a great big muskie on a fly, uh, I wrote an article um, I've read a lot of articles. You asked me about books. No articles, a lot. Um, somewhere in the IGFA, uh, um, um, what is it called? It comes out once a year. IGFA uh, Annual.
1: Oh, they're you know uh, publication.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fishes of the America or of the world or whatever it is. Two years ago, I wrote a piece in that about how to catch a muskie on a, on a fly and uh, the most high odds way and that is you go to a northern minnesota northern wisconsin uh southern ontario clear body of water in springtime when the shallows are going to approach 60 degrees and you what warms up at the When is dictated by bottom content and where it is on the lake. The northwest corner always warms up more quickly, but not always because it could be the wrong color bottom or this or that. And not everybody, not every place warms up at the same time. Anyway, at 60, they start rolling in and you'll see fish that are belly to the bottom. You'll see some fish that are suspended. Uh, the ones that are belly to the bottom um, if you are sneaky and you do what i described to you earlier with the sinking line and take if take a first trip diver it doesn't have to be any longer than six five six inches long and uh and most people don't tie them right they, they, the ones that have that have been made by the factory have never been right the heads are okay but instead of making a straight strip like this, these pre-cut straight strips, that isn't what you want. You want to make it in a taper, like that, like the two insides of my fingers. That way, they they cast way way better. They swim better. They just they work just way way better. But anyway, you bought this fish, make your cast, maybe get so it's six eight feet in front of him. Let the line sink to the bottom. You just strip, 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 and let that little thing come, maybe bump bottom, come back up, and you, you catch just about everyone that you see. Uh, and then the ones that are up high, you just sort of, there's different ways that you mess with them and, and tease them. Uh, but during that period, you, you can catch, I mean, you can go catch, <laughs> you catch everyone you see. If you do it right.
1: Lake St. Clair, here I come.
2: St. Clair's real dirty. That would not be a good choice. Uh, oh because, no! Darn it! No, no, that's a good place to go blind cast them, but it's the yeah. least place, the least fun place I can think of to fish them because okay. you're gonna. It's a great big wide open weed flat, and it can get real real dirty due to wind, and it's wide open and in the wind. And uh, what's interesting about the most interesting thing to me about muskies is they seem, and I'm not a superstitious person, some of them seem almost sentient, where they'll come up and and they'll follow something and roll their eye and look at you uh, and then swim away, and that's kind of fun. Um, But in areas where you have more of a target, I think you'd have a lot, it's a lot more interesting. And in clearer water, it's a lot more interesting. Uh, Where you want to go, I I used to fish them on rowan a lot. Uh, in uh, southern Ontario, but we well, I was have just going to say uh,
1: Ontario, yeah. Uh,
2: North, northern Minnesota, uh, the, especially western Minnesota, uh, really, really some excellent, excellent musky fishing and nice, clean, clear water. It's just a matter of, of being there at the, you know, at the at the right time.
1: I'm going to let you get back to your morning. Um, thank you so much for waking up so early to meet with me. This is definitely two very different time zones. So I'm amazed that we were able to make this work.
2: Well, I don't think you should be that amazed.
1: (laughs) I guess now. I guess it's 10 isn't that
2: late and 4 isn't that early, you know?
1: I think 4 is that early. I will say that that 10 p.m. is not too late, but I feel like 4 a.m. is very early.
2: Well, like I said, the early worm gets eaten.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, Larry, thank you so much. I think you're just an absolute legend and I'm very excited to, um, yeah, have other people hear your story and see what you're up to next.
2: All right. Well, thank you and, uh, have a nice night.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored.
2: legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv
0: the destination for outdoor entertainment
2: brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne
0: tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv